Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. They know that this is a real asset with real people and not everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows, but they will respect you more for telling them about the challenges you're facing and what you're doing about it. They just come in. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hey, best ever listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I am your host today, Matt Faircloth. You may know me from the Bigger Pockets podcast, the Bigger Pockets Bootcamp, or our company, the DeRosa Group's YouTube channel. Today, I'm here with Best Ever for a new series focused on the fundamentals of multifamily investing. Whether you're new to real estate investing or you're a single family investor looking to make the jump into multifamily, and even if you're an experienced syndicator, it's always important to remember and understand the fundamentals. So in this 10-part series, we're going to deep dive into the fundamentals of not just investing in multifamily, but building a business. We're going to dissect everything from choosing the right market, understanding and financing multifamily properties, and knowing how to master investor relations, all the way to how to build out your multifamily dream team. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And I'm super excited to be here today with my man, my partner in crime, my brother from another mother, my hammer, the guy that makes it happen, Justin Fraser. How are you today? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me today. I cannot wait to get into this. <laughs> I can't either, man. This is an interesting conversation. And it's one that we're kind of engaging something head on that not everybody gets into in the multifamily business, which is talking about how to structure things, win-wins with investors and with your partners. I've had people straight up come to me and say, hey, Matt, what law is there that it says, or where does the SEC require how much split you give your investors? Is it a law that you have to do a 70-30 split, right? And you can mess with them and say, no, or of course it is. Yeah, the SEC says 70-30, right? Exactly. The thing is, is that there is no rule about it. There's just industry standards around these things, around how the general partners carve things up, how the limited partners carve things up. And there's very little rules around it. There's industry standards, but we're going to talk about the rules that are there today. And we're going to talk about what some of these industry standards are and why they're there. And and perhaps as a listener, how you can structure deals with your investors and with your partners moving forward and what we have found at DeRosa best practices to be. So Justin, you ready to hop in? Yeah, we have to hop in. And I think we start by saying that everything is negotiable. 
every piece of every deal is 100% negotiable. And yes, there are industry standards, as you already threw out, 70-30. But as markets change, as finance requirements change, maybe we go 80-20, maybe we go 90-10, maybe we go 50-50, who knows? So everything that we're going to talk about in this episode today is from our experience, from best practices that we've seen, but also know that it heavily, heavily depends on the type of experience you're bringing, the amount of experience or money or whatever else you're bringing to the deal. So there's so many different ways that you might weight up or down on the negotiations and the splits and everything else. So just know that whatever we say here today is not set in stone and it's all negotiable. So just getting that out of the way, let's hop right into it, Matt. Yeah. And two things, Number one, when you're taking someone else's money, I like to view it as more important than my money. So we have mantra at DeRosa Investors First. So when folks invest with you, you need to treat it as if you are a custodian, a safekeeper, let's say, maybe a better word, of their money. Because you are. So you got to treat it even more important than your money because they've really entrusted you as someone that's running a multifamily project that you're going to do the right thing by them. You're going to be making the decisions on the asset management team. And I know Justin takes this very seriously, that he's making decisions on a daily basis that involve other people's financial future. Not to put too much pressure on you, Justin, but I'm not putting anything. You already know that. And I think that to you listeners, as you start to raise more capital from investors, it's important to take things under that consideration. You give investors plenty of respect and also access to profitability in your deal because they're treating you that way, because they're entrusting you. And so they are entitled to a good rate of return because of the level of trust they have for you. So the way you do that is you're fair with them. You give them the opportunity to have big wins and opportunities in your deal. And you also have conversations with your investors. When's the last time, listener, you've maybe sat down with one of your investors and said, what's a heck yes rate of return you'd love to see on your money? And maybe they spit out a number. And you then the way that you carve your deal up has to do with what your investor's expectations are, not thinking, what's the absolute minimum rate of return I could give this investor for them to be happy? How least amount of money could I give them? Instead of that, turn it around and ask them what they want from you, what they would love to see from a deal and from you, and then get that for them. Because you've got a deal it's really about how you slice it to, to get the investor their rate of return they'd like to see and have the rest remaining for your GP because this isn't a hobby for you either. You also need to make money too and you get whatever's left beyond the investor rate of returns. Right, Justin? You're talking about syndication, which is what we do. The pooling of money, the pool of taking, we go out, we have an offering, we say, hey, we're going to offer up usually 80% of this offering to our limited partners. We are going to be the operators. We are in charge. Specifically, my asset management team is in charge. We are going to be making decisions every day on behalf of our investors. So long after we bought the property, long after we've negotiated a price and terms and everything else, there's a series of thousands of decisions that happen every day, whether it's where to invest, dollars, what kind of returns we're looking to get. Should we go fix this parking lot or not? We're weighing the cost versus long-term upside. But all of that, one, we have to take care of our property. We have to take care of the people who are on our property. That includes residents, that includes the people that work there, that includes the contractors that come in and out and all of that. But we also have to use our guiding light of is this decision what's best for our investors? And Matt, you mentioned highest rates of return and all that. And of course, we want the highest rate of return for our investors as well. We are successful when they are successful. But it's so much more than that. 
We recently, even in the last week, had some very heavy negotiations on a potential exit of a deal. And it wasn't all about dollars in the pocket, but mitigating risk. And we had an opportunity where it was like, we might get more dollars, but it's way riskier that the deal might fall apart completely based on what they wanted. So that's a perfect example of us making a decision on maybe a more sure thing that gets our investors a desired result versus swinging for the fence with other people's money. That's not something that we like to do. We want to be steady. We want to be trustworthy. We want our investors to know that we are doing the right thing by them and being good stewards of their money. And so that through every decision we make through the negotiations and everything else, every part of ownership, that is kind of our guiding light of like what is best for them. So actually I think it grounds us a little bit Matt, because if it's just my money or mine and your money, maybe we get a little more risky and we might swing for the fences a little bit more. But having this other group of people that we have to answer to and be respectful of and be considerate of really helps us make decisions. And it actually even becomes easier to say no to certain ideas and opportunities because, you know what, that's not going to fly with our investors. That's not something we can get involved in. Yeah, you could be a gambler at heart and that's okay if you are and that's fine. But you got to put a lot of your personal risk tolerances on the shelf when operating with other people's money and operate at a risk tolerance that puts your investors first. That's just our mantra. We believe that works. We believe that is what's going to keep you in this business for the long game as well is putting your investors first, maybe not your personal profit first or taking as much risk to make the most return first as well. So moving on, guys, that's the structure. Hopefully, we've really taken that home, guys. There is no law. There is no rule that says how much you got to give investors. As Justin said, 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, 50-50, whatever it is. It's just a matter of it's a win-win for investors. So to bring that home, what I suggest you guys do is model a few deals and maybe model them for your investors. And when we model a deal, I typically only look at the investor profit because I know that's really what matters the most. And whatever we make on top of that is... Not so much gravy, but that's our reward beyond that. So we will adjust the model until it makes fiscal sense for the investor. So that's how you create a win-win for investors, guys. Whatever financial software you're using, whether you're one of our students using our in-house financial model or whether you're using something you find online or your own financial model, sit down with the brain on your team and look at the financial picture for each deal and play with the investor splits to the point where it produces that win that we've talked about here, right? That's how you determine the splits is by just tweaking the numbers until they produce the investor returns that you think your investors are going to be a heck yes to get into the deal with you on. I do want to say though, to that point, Matt, don't go so far that there's no more incentive or upside for you because this is not a hobby for us. And actually, your investors are going to want to see that you've got some skin in the game and some financial upside because they're going to want to know that things go sideways or start to get a little dicey, that you still have that upside potential that you can capture. And so if they know that you're just in service to them and you're not going to get something out of it, they think it's actually easier for you to walk away from because you don't have any. I'll, and I'll go there with you. Let's go there. That's why I'm not the biggest fan. I saw 95-5 split one time, Justin. 95% of the profit goes to investors, 5% goes to the GP. Or even a 90-10 split, I'm not the hugest fan on. You got to do what you got to do to make the deal work sometimes. If you got a deal that you think has plenty of upside. But if you don't have something like a waterfall in there, which is a little more of a techie term, but all that means is the more profit investors get, the more profit you get. So it might start out as a 90-10, but if investors get over a certain dollar amount in profit called a hurdle, Maybe after that hurdle, more and more money starts flowing to the GP. I could probably see a 90-10 split from an operator if that's in the cards. But to Justin's point, 
if all they're making is their acquisition fee, is their primary source of profit, then I would be leery of that as an investor. It's not necessarily a win and win-win, right? A win-win really looks like the GP winning alongside investors and getting a sizable reward when investors meet the returns and when the deal achieves success. Not that 9010 is not the way to do it, but it should slant more and more towards the GP as more and more profits made. That's win-win. If I'm investing in someone's deal, as I do invest in other people's opportunities, if I'm investing in someone's opportunity and I see it's so slanted that the GP is not really attached, all they really want is that acquisition fee. And then whatever happens beyond that, it's all gravy. I'm not as excited. I want to see them win. I want to see them make lots of money if the deal's successful. If I make a lot of money, you want to have the operator make a lot of money too. Yeah, you don't want that operator so, to have any excuse to just back off and take their foot off the well, gas. Well, right? it's just not in it for me. And then it doesn't matter how much percentage of that deal you have. If it goes to zero, you've got a big percentage of zero, right? Yeah, ninety percent of zero. Well done. Congrats. Anyway, moving on, guys. Win-win. Keep bringing that home, right? Win-win. That's real win-win is if you win, investors win too. Now, moving on to the other component, and let's talk about the two components, is I am cognizant that people either listening to this show or people in your network, listener, maybe don't speak real estate jargon. And Justin and I are conscious of this on our team, and I want you guys to be conscious of this in your world, that not everybody knows the words that we know as seasoned real estate investors. So we throw around terms like GPLP, general partner, limited partner, syndication. Justin's already defined what a syndication is. So Justin, can you talk us through real quick GPLP, fun slang to throw around. What do those terms even mean? And forgive me, listener, for those of y'all already know this, but my point of bringing this up is to educate you guys in the concept of making sure your investors and folks that are outside your little bubble of real estate investing know what it is you're talking about. So Justin, real quick in layman's terms, GPLP, what you talking about? Matt, you and I are part of the general partnership whenever we bring a deal out. So the general partnership, the GP, are the active members of the team, the sponsor team, the team that is bringing the deal, the team that did the work of going to the markets, did the work of the underwriting, did the work of the capital raising, and is going to do the work of the asset management. That is the general partnership. The GP can be one person. The GP can be 10 people, depending on how your company is set up or a series of companies. 10 GPs can get a little heavy, but every deal is different. So sometimes Justin you have- I know that firsthand. I think we got one deal that's get 21 GPs on it. Lovely. <laughs> so yeah. we're not pointing fingers. These things happen. But everyone on the general partnership has to be an active contributor to the business. So you can be an active contributor by signing for the debt, even if it's non-recourse, by putting your name and your balance sheet up. You can be an active contributor because you found the deal. You can be an active contributor because you are on the asset management team. You can be an active contributor because you raise money, but not only because you raise money. You have to still be consulting on the team, part of the board. You can't just drop some dollars into a deal from your network and walk away. That is not being an active member of the general partnership. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Let's go further. That is a flag with the SEC. If someone raises money for a deal and then walks away and says, bye, call me when my check's ready, when it's profitable, you can't do that. Because what you're doing, if you get compensated, if you do somebody a favor and do it for zero and do it as a hobby, then maybe that's one thing. But if you get any type of compensation in raising equity for someone's deal, what you just did is sold a security. You sold a security and you got compensated for it. And you can't do that. 
without being a broker dealer and having a license and a professional equity and securities sales company. And you're likely not that. And so because you're not that, what you want to do is you need to be an active member of the GP team because the SEC also allows active members of the GP team to sell equity. It's like you're selling equity in something that you're an officer or a participant in. So you're allowed to do that. If you're not an active participant in the GP, you cannot sell equity in that venture. So the way to comply with the SEC with that is sure, go out and sell equity for the deal. Go out and do that as part of your roles and responsibilities for the GP team, but also have something else to do. As Justin said, be a part of the asset management team also. Justin is the lead asset manager and runs all of our operations at DeRosa, and he also sells equity for our company because he's got his network of people that believe in what we do and that believe in our mission. If you've got someone that their primary strength is raising capital, and that you need them to be involved in the company in some other fashion. What we've done at DeRosa, and this is past the muster with our attorneys, is form a board of directors and have that GPC for the person that did raise equity, have them as a active member of a board of directors with recorded minutes, with recorded Zoom calls, and have them raise their hand and say, yes, I make a motion that we do this or whatever. And they're on that call on a regular basis. And by the way, if they don't show up for those board meetings, they could lose their interest in the property. So there are, of course, other ways to do this. That's just what we do. But there's other ways to keep your capital raising team, those that brought that hard-earned equity into the deal, to keep them engaged. Whatever you do, they can't just disappear after the deal closes. They need to stay involved all the way up through closing other things that we've done are subcommittees or special projects. So could be that someone has a background in design and can help us design out our model or signage or graphic design or some other aspect there. Could be someone knows IT network security and can take the lead on our new security system project that we're rolling out. One of our GPs went down there and hung up security cameras for us. Great. He literally went out took, there took with that a toolbox because list, list, right? he knew how to raise some money, but he also knew how to wire up a camera system. So he did that as an active part. And that person's still active. You've got to do one thing, but then there's another thing they need to do to stay active throughout the life of the project. Guys, bringing it all home, as I talk about in Raising Private Capital in my book, the GP is the deal provider. The GP brings, as Justin said, the opportunity. The market analysis, the loan guarantor, if that needs to happen, all the sweat that it takes to make the deal happen, the GP provides the deal and the effort and the contacts and the everything to bring the deal to fruition. The other side of it is the cash provider that I talk about in Raising Private Capital. They're bringing the dollars. That is the LP and their primary contribution to the deal is their hard-earned money, a check, their self-directed IRA, money out of their own personal savings account, whatever it is, their dollar is the largest contribution, in some ways their only contribution to the deal to bring it to success. So Justin, those are the two components, GPLP, deal provider, cash provider, allow raising private capital. That's what it takes to bring a deal to fruition. Those are the two components of the team. Yeah, the limited partners are just that. They're limited. So they're limited in their decision-making ability. They're not going to have an active voice on the property level decision-making. They're not going to be visiting the property every two, three weeks and talking to property managers, but they're also not going to be liable. They're not going to be the ones that are on the hook to run this asset. They are hands-off. We call this passive investing. Not that we're not a transparent company and show and tell everyone about what's going on, but they're not in the active decision-making process here.
Absolutely. And that's okay. And you also, as the operator, need to make sure your investor base is okay with that. I've talked to plenty of investors that have said, I've got plenty of money. I'd like to put into your deal and I'm super excited about it. Can I approve the leases when people apply to rent out at your property? Or can I talk to the vendors on a weekly basis? Or is it okay if I interview the property manager also? Guys, you want to be careful of things like that, that you want to work with LPs that want to truly trust you as the GP to be the decision maker for the deal, not their decision maker, but making the right decisions for the project. That's really the arrangement you want. Now we've allowed certain LPs that have put a lot of capital into our deal, certain access. We certainly let our LPs walk our sites and things like that. But at some point, there's got to be a line. Your LP needs to just trust that you're going to do the right thing by their money and that you're going to be able to weather the storm and do right by them and that the roles and responsibilities and delineations break at some point and they trust that you're going to do the right thing and you do do the right thing with their money. Right, Justin? Yeah. We've had some LPs or potential LPs ask some questions and it just creates some red flags. And you know what? Not every person that has money is a good fit for your deal or your company. So in the beginning, you might be like, why on earth would I ever turn down some money? And I understand that I've been there. Trust me. But as we've evolved as a company, we screen that and we will sometimes make a determination this is not the right fit. This is not the right project for you. Could be you want your money back too soon or you want to be more active or something else. So not every potential limited partner is actually right for your deal. So I do encourage you to screen them and make sure that what you're offering, the plan you're offering is a good fit for the type of investment that person is willing to make. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing it home on the way that you really win and create win-win relationships with your LP team is around communications and transparency. That is one of the core tenants or core foundations here at DeRosa's transparency for investors. And we highly recommend you guys do the same in that because I think that it will create long-term trust and repeat investors to come back over and over and over again on your deal. So Transparency can look like this. It can look like regular communications. Talking to the money on your team right now, we recommend you guys send out monthly, not every other month, not quarterly, not every year, not just call me if you want to know how it's going. Send out proactive monthly reports to your investors saying, these are the highlights of what's happening right now. Here's the good, the bad, the ugly. If you got ugly, tell them about it. That's the worst thing you can do. That's certainly not transparent is if you got ugly and not talking about it and that's not transparent. That's all just sunshine and roses, right? <laughs> you don't want to give that kind of transparency or just half the truth to your investors. So you got stuff going on, tell them what's going on and tell them what you're going to do about it. That's real transparency. And we wouldn't be in this business for as long as we have, if we haven't had properties that had issues. And we've always discussed those issues with our investors in an open forum, open communication. So I recommend you guys do the same. Justin, you draft a lot of those investor communications. So what are the key components of that level of transparency that you think is necessary for people to really feel like they're keeping their investors in the loop? I could write for days about every little decision that we make about every property. And yeah. this week we did this and this week we did that. And we talked to our manager about this. And I think in the very beginning, we were a lot more verbose around that. But you have to find the balance between the 10 paragraph narrative and then the three bullet points is not enough either. So we like to talk about key metrics like occupancy, collections. We talk about special projects. 
how are our renovations going? Are we spending more or less than we were expecting? Did we have any major leaks or big problems or we're doing better than we expected or worse than we expected? Here's a cool surprise or a staff member left. So we're replacing them. Any of the key things that happen on the property without getting, like I said, too, too detailed, you want to be able to let them know you've got your finger on the pulse. So however that comes across on certain properties, some of our properties, it's like, hey, we're still highly occupied. We're still rolling. No new projects this month. Everything is sunshine and rainbows. There's not much to update. But unfortunately, usually we don't have too many months like that. There's always something it's going on. It's never all sunshine and it's rainbows. It's usually Justin. not. So contractors not, and in and out, new projects. If you're an LP in someone else's deal, let's be straight, man. If you're an LP in someone else's deal and they're only giving you sunshine and rainbows, not for nothing, guys. They're not telling you something. That's right. <laughs> There's always a little bit of hair on the cheeseburger, a little bit, just to envision that. You know, but that's that's uh, a great point, and and it's hard to write those words as the man that has written a lot of those words some, from time to time. When these things come up, this is a setback. We're not getting the rent we expected. We spent way more on this retaining wall once we got into it and realized it cost us way more. Whatever the thing is, you want your investors to know because you know what. By telling them, by being upfront, and not only stating the problem, but stating what you're doing about it, and then following up the next month and saying, hey, remember that thing I told you about last month? Here's what happened since then. Here's what we're working on. Whether you solved it or not, Matt, hopefully, yes, we've solved it. Or, hey, this is still an ongoing thing. We tried X, Y. Now we're going to try Z. And here's what we're trying to do to solve this problem. And we have some things in our portfolio that have been lingering for 10 months. And we've been guessing and checking and trying things, but we keep investors updated on everything that's going on and what we're trying and who we're talking to and who we're hiring and what consultants we brought in and everything else. Because some problems are not up and down and can be solved in one week or one day and are long lingering ongoing problems. We're dealing with Real assets that are, in some cases, 40 years old or more that have a long, long history of ownership before us. So sometimes we discover things that we just have to take the right approach. And sometimes that takes a little while. So just being transparent about all of that. And your investors, by the way, they bought in on the plan and the hype and they're excited about it. But they know, hopefully, if you've done the homework right in the capital raising side of things, they know that this is a real asset with real people and not everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows, but they will respect you more for telling them about the challenges you're facing and what you're doing about it than just covering it up. You're right. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, but it also is rainbow sometimes too. We've got assets that are performing at 95% occupancy and performing above projections. Now, I also read Justin's report on those properties. What we don't do is just sit and high five ourselves in the investor reports as well. It's like, we're amazing. Have a great day. We don't do that. What you want to do with investors is say, okay, this is what's going on. We're really happy. This is how we're going to maintain that. This is how we're going to keep this going. So this is real transparent communications is we don't expect this to continue forever because we know this is not real. And asset management is continuing the good things. And here's how we're going to go to the next level beyond this. We're going to maybe do a water metering program, or we're going to do more tenant appreciation days to keep our tenants super happy and keep ourselves at 95% occupancy, whatever it is. So a good communication report is going to tell investors, again, what's going on, the good, the bad. And if things are going well, that's great. What are you going to do to keep it going? And if things aren't going that well in certain aspects with the investment, what you're going to do to fix. That's real transparent communications. And that's another contribution to a win 
for your LPs. And any other thoughts, Justin? Because we're going to transition to conversations on the GP side. Yeah, well, before, um, before there, there's other update. ways we can Bring be it transparent. Home. It's not just the monthly updates, but every one of our investors, when they invest with us, they get invited to our Facebook group. And in that Facebook group, we are sometimes going live at our properties and we're showing photos of renovations and transformations and other things. So it's not a specific cadence of every three weeks we're updating, but it's on site. And if I'm on a property and we're dealing with something, oftentimes I'll just hit the go live button and show off something that's going on at our property because it just continues that transparency and showing people, look at this cool thing we're doing at one of our properties or look at this mess we just walked into. How would you solve this type thing? It's um, a great way to show investors where the money yeah, is. And uh, so that's a great way for transparent communications with your investors as well, guys. So keep that in. So just to highlight it here, the way that you create win-wins on the LP side is through putting investors first with regards to cash on cash returns and just profit projections that you think you want to make, putting what their returns are going to be first in your analysis and also transparent communications and being really honest as best you can in your communications with investors. Moving on to the other side of it, into your GP, there are, as Justin and I have said, we've worked on large projects that had a large GP team. And we've also worked on smaller projects that have small GP teams. Justin, there are a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. On the GP side, what are some ways that win-win ends up happening among the implementation side, among the deal providing side of a deal? General partnership. We talked about Hunter Brain Money Hammer. We've talked about these a few weeks ago and throughout this course, but you can't just grab somebody and say, you're now on the team with me because just anybody is probably not going to be a good fit. And we've learned some hard lessons along the way as we've evolved our company. Some partnerships work for the time that they're there, but maybe are not built for you for the long-term scale. And so I do want to caution everybody that if you're going to buy a property with other GPs, you are getting into a business with them. And if your business plan is a five, seven, 10 year business plan, you are now married to these people for that five, seven or 10 years, regardless through the good times and the bad, it is very much like a marriage. So I just want to start this GP conversation by saying that the people that you're bringing in are going to be your partners for the long term. It's not very easy to swap somebody in and out of a general partnership. I don't know if it even if possible. So you want to make sure that you are getting into projects with the right kind of people that have complementary skill sets that are going to add value to the team. We've already talked about all the general partners have to be active. So how is each partner going to be active and positively contribute? And it's worth taking a few days, a few minutes at the start of our project to talk to each person that's going to be on the GP. How are you going to add value? These are my expectations for you as we move through this project. Let's hear your expectations of me. Let's define what success looks like. Let's define how we're going to be involved. Let's think about our personal time and energy and what's going on in my life. And how is that not only affect how I can contribute today, but two, three, four, five, ten 10 years from now, this is my plan. I'm planning to go sit on a beach and not do anything in four years. Okay. Probably shouldn't be an asset manager for the next 10 years. So we have to think about these things and make sure that our long-term goals are in alignment. 
Of course, things change. Of course, life happens, but you want to at least start from that same goal, same foundation of we're heading in the same direction. Here's how I'm going to add value. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what you expect of me. And we can start with that same very, very clear communication before we set into this long-term business venture together. Yeah. And then I can tell you, we've made the mistake of not being aligned in time expectations or in longer term expectations with people. And I talk with our students about building businesses versus doing deals. And there may be a doing the deal psychology, maybe a rung on the ladder you got to step on for right now, but I highly recommend you guys to focus as quickly as you can on building a long-term business. If I can cite Joe and Frank, the founders of Ashcroft Capital, they got into it and they're sitting on thousands and thousands and thousands of units of multifamily and they've built a business together. You could strive to just do a deal or two and crush your fingers and hope they go well. Or you could look to build something that's as admirable as Ashcroft or dare I even say what we're building at DeRosa that is a long-term business. Doing deals looks like, okay, this person just found a 100-unit apartment building. What market's it in? doesn't matter. It's a 100-unit apartment building. Let's just go do the deal. Oh, let me go assemble a capital raising team. Let me go find somebody who lives in that market that can go keep an eye on it and make sure it's not on fire at a given time and make sure the property manager is still working on site. And let me go find somebody who can analyze it. And let me go and just throw together a team to run that property for me. And in prior economies, maybe that would have worked. And it has. I've seen assembled teams like that on onesie twosie deals. I've seen that work. And we've done it in our earlier career. But I just recommend you guys to Justin's point that if you're going to be doing a deal with someone, make sure that you're going to be willing to be doing business with them for the next at least five years. Maybe you get lucky and the deal sells in a year or two, but it's got to be likely a five-year relationship in that. So Justin, that's a big mistake I see people make is, is doing deals versus building businesses. And we've grown into building businesses here at Derosa, where we control the entire thing and we bring everybody in. We bring other folks on the GP team as needed, but it's likely under our umbrella in that. Anything else you want to throw in there? It's just a matter of short-term versus long-term. The biggest mistake I see is people think about the deal that's right in front of them, but they're not thinking about the long-term business. They're not thinking about how are we going to work together over the next five, seven, 10 years? How are we going to complement each other's skills and build something that's greater than one deal at a time? So we want to see them all work together and have that long-term vision so that we can be successful. Absolutely. And yet again, I've had this question asked me as well. I'll just Remember earlier in this conversation, Justin, we talked about what is the law that the SEC says that you have to give your investors as a split? So what is that law? That's the secret. There is no law. The other, I've had people ask, what does the rule say that you have to give someone that either is a part of the capital raising team and other teams for your deal or asset management? How much do you have to give the person that brought the deal to the team, the hunter, let's say? New shock. There is no rule. Have a conversation about what you think this thing may look like. And I just want to add a little bit more of my thoughts onto what Justin said earlier about having that deep dive conversation about where are you on this? And this is you talking to another GP. What is your long-term contribution to this? Are you looking to produce the deal and get it to closing as a hunter and then run through the closing mechanisms? And then once the deal closes, that's your contribution and then you move on? Are you looking to join monthly, quarterly calls on how things are going and that's all the time you want to put in? Because that's one thing. 
and that might entitle you to lower access of ongoing fees. They may be a little more on the front end or maybe it flips around, whatever it is, but you really want to ask what people's expected involvement is getting the deal from the very beginning of the opportunity all the way through to when it sells or whenever it exits and really modeling out what time commitment people are really willing to bring to the table and then documenting it, of course. We believe in documents that record these things in that. So Justin, what are your thoughts on how to properly carve up the GP team? We could cite a few percentages, but guess what, guys? Newsflash, doesn't matter. Yeah, industry standards don't really matter. Maybe the most common one is for the capital raising team. There's usually a percentage of the GP for the people that are raising the capital. I even hesitate to throw that out there right now, but that kind of is... is... And by the way, I just want to say one thing, Justin, you can't do sliding scale compensation. You can't do... For every dollar you bring into the deal, you get a percentage of equity in the deal because that's giving a fee in exchange for raising equity. And the more equity you raise, the more you get. You can't do that either. But as we said, there's four quadrants. There are four superpowers. There's the core four that we talk about. The person that finds the deal and brings it to closing. The person that analyzes and builds the business plan. The person that raises all the capital for the deal and brings all the money to the table. And the person that runs the asset management. A easy way to do it is to start the conversation at 25%, 25%, 25%, 25% for all those initiatives. Now, it opens up more conversation on, well, a lot of times syndications involve fees and that. So what percent of access to the fees these different members of the team may have, what different access to the ongoing fees, the acquisition fee, the asset management fee, and then the upside equity. Some folks call it the carve out that the general partner gets as the deal achieves more and more success. These are open conversations that you can have and you can move that needle one way or another having to do with how much people contributed and they're willing to do ongoing into the deal. I don't recommend that if you've got an underwriter slash brain business plan creator on the team, we had this problem at DeRosa years ago that the underwriter didn't want to be involved in the deal after it closed, wanted to move on down the road and get on to the next horizons. That's not really fair and that's not really a good equation. The reason why you don't want that is they built the plan. They should be checking in on a regular basis on the company's financials to make sure that that asset is doing what it is that they said it was supposed to in their plan. They need to be doing regular checks and meeting with the asset manager and saying, I thought we were going to raise rents by 50 bucks after you did those renovations. Looks like you're only getting 25. Why is that? That's throwing off my plan. Let me underwrite it again and show how that throws off the model. Yeah, da, 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 right? You want to have these folks can continuing to contribute. And the more involved you can keep them through the cradle to grave process of the ownership of the deal, I think the better off you're going to be. You have to define that. Like I was saying before, we have to have those upfront expectations. Not only am I expecting you to underwrite this deal today, but I'm expecting you to be checking in every week or every month and reviewing the financials and commenting on this and checking in on interest rates and doing a refinance analysis and on and on and on and all these other things that might happen. So yeah, we have to set very clear expectations about how each team member is involved in the ongoing basis. Because trust me, as the hammer, what I don't want is my hunter to find the deal, my money to raise the money, and my underwriter to underwrite the deal. And then they all just disappear. And here I am as a hammer and I've got to make all these decisions for the next 10 years by myself and run this thing. And I've only got a quarter of the percentage. So we have to talk about who's involved in what, 
how much value is there? So I do agree with you, Matt, starting at that 25 each baseline, but then you've got to go up and down. And you can make this as complicated as you want. We have had many, many iterations of spreadsheets and all kinds of kickers and upsides and downsides and if this and that. And it literally caused us to have fights among our team. I deserve more and I deserve less. This and that and this and that. We just threw all that aside and said, look, let's reform. We got a partnership here. We got a strong DeRosa group team and it's DeRosa that can be successful together. And then we may consider bringing in other partners and working with other people, but DeRosa as a block is united and is one entity moving forward. And I'll carry that home with you guys to bring it home here. Two things. Justin said this to me a million times. When you buy a multifamily apartment building, you are pretty much buying a little business. It's got its own little P&L. It's got its own income. It's got its own expenses. It's got its own ups and downs. In some ways, it's got its own little personality. And you've got yourself a business that is a long-term game that you need to be playing long-term with. You got to make sure that the folks that you latch yourself with on that business are looking to be long-term business partners with you, whether it's just on that deal and hopefully building a long-term business forward, long-term. Under one umbrella, it's got one name. That's one flag, by the way, is if you buy a multifamily asset and everybody's got a different handle on the end of their email addresses and it's not one collective company buying, it's this LLC partnered with ABC LLC partnered with XYZ LLC and whatnot. That looks like just a doing deal arrangement. We we had a lender give us some pretty stark feedback at one point saying, what's happening with all you guys? Y'all have different email addresses. What's going on? Let's tell that story real quick. We were standing out in front of one of our assets, Justin, Irve, and I, and that's probably was the impetus in us doing, in us really decided to just play the long, it was years and years ago, in building a long-term business. He came up, he's like, who am I doing business with? I got this guy over here with this email address. This guy over here's got a Gmail. He's telling me he's on your team. And I got all these different components and different people. Are you guys one company? Are you guys a collective collaboration? Because this lender's talking to us. And he said, I see folks that are coming to us that are little collaborations of different operators. I understand that, but you guys have actually been able to build a pretty good brand and a pretty good business. Are you guys one company or are you a puzzle of a few different companies? You listeners want to be one collective brand. That's what you want to evolve into. So that's how you're going to become the Ashcrofts of the world that you're going to grow and grow and grow and have a collective brand, collective culture, collective everything that you're able to play the long game. And this business is a long game of real estate investing. So you can do deals over and over and over and over over again. And it doesn't matter as much on who's getting the splits, who's getting this, who's getting that, because it's really all for one, one for all at that point. And it all just kind of goes into the mix and everybody just makes something up what the company collectively makes. That is the long game. Justin, your final thoughts on playing the long game and win-win. Listen, you have to play the long game. If you have that short-sightedness, probably large multifamily is not right for you because (laughs) You're going to trip over yourself. You're going to have the fights. You're going to have disagreements with the partners. And look, you're always going to have disagreements, but you have to set that foundation, setting the right foundation, asking the right questions, defining what success looks like, defining what we all want to be doing in five and 10 years from now so that we know we're heading in the same direction is absolutely crucial. Don't just pick business partners because they are standing next to you and also want to do multifamily. Let's really evaluate our business partners, evaluate the you people. Can't, you can't do a deal with somebody you meet at a conference and have a 10-minute conversation. And you then go can and eventually if you, you spend the time and you dig in with them. 
So yes, you should be meeting people at conferences. And if you are looking for missing puzzle pieces to your team, if you're a hammer and need everyone else, go find those people. Recognize where your deficiencies are and who can add value to your team. But don't jump in bed and go buy a property without actually vetting them, without actually doing your homework, without having these foundational questions, because you have to be in it for the long term. And if you're not complimentary, if you have different, I say this definitions of success, I've said it a few times, Matt, if your definition of success is I want to flip a property, make a million dollars and ride off into the sunset next year, that's fantastic for you. And I hope you get that. But my definition of success might be, I want to build a sustainable long-term business that can employ people and do the X, Y, and Z and great a thousand units in this market, but very different definitions of success. We're heading in two very different directions. So have those questions, make sure we both want the same thing. And then we can start talking about partnership and splits and what that might look like. Love it. That's what we got today on forming win-wins. Dare I say, just playing the long game with your investors and your partners. So if you guys enjoy what we've talked about today, I encourage all you guys to go to derosagroup.com, our company website, D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com forward slash best ever. DeRosaGroup.com forward slash best ever will lead you to all kinds of other resources, many of which are free that can help you guys along the way on your multifamily business. If you're looking to do what we did at DeRosa, which was 10x our portfolio through implementing technologies such as the core four method, aligning with superpowers. And if you guys want to take our free superpower assessment that is available at that site as well, that will tell you which of the four superpowers you are, and it'll help you drill in and then find others that you want to align with for building that win-win slash long game team for yourselves and building yet another sustainable business, not just doing deals. All those resources are there at derosergroup.com forward slash best ever. So check that out. Justin, phenomenal conversation as always today. I appreciate you joining me today for the best ever show. Guys, Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.